Howdy folks, welcome to our podcast, American Cowboy in New Zealand. This is Ben Longwell with True West Horsemanship. We're glad you're here. Join us as we share stories and adventures and interview extraordinary men and women in the equine and ranching industries to gain insight into horsemanship and life itself. It is our mission to help people and their horses better understand one another and achieve together that which they cannot do individually. Thanks for riding along with us. Well, Colton, it's great to have you. Good to good to visit with you again here today, and I sure appreciate you making the time to to join us here on American Cowboy in New Zealand. Uh, awesome! But, Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, for sure. So you you're just telling me that you just flew in from a from a clinic up in Maine, and and you're in Kentucky. So uh, do you do you do quite a bit getting around that part of the country back east there? Yeah, so we normally have a pretty good stretch that I kind of try to section off the country a little bit when we do clinic runs. Um, we're based right outside Lexington, Kentucky, and it's a really central part of the country. So even with our training horses, people can will send us horses from New York, and it's a 10, 12-hour trip. They can come from Minnesota, northern Wisconsin. It's another 10-hour trip. Florida, 10-hour trip. Like We're right really in a good place to reach all across the East Coast. And so with my clinics, I take the same approach. And so, like you said, I just got back from up Northern Maine. I mean, we could have thrown a rock and hit Canada basically. And I was up there for a couple of days and we, I did, we did a clinic run Connecticut, New York, up to Maine and back down. I happened to fly to that Maine clinic just because it's a little more efficient than driving. That was an 18 hour drive if I would have drove it. And it was a little more efficient just to fly up there for a couple of days and fly back home. But we do. I normally do a Northeast run. And the way I try to structure my clinics is a lot of times I'll go to a place early spring and then go back early fall. And so that I can work with them. And about six months later, we'll work together again, gives them some homework for the winter. And then a lot of the guys that are out showing horses or even if you're out trail riding an early spring clinic to get ready to go trail ride all summer and enjoy it. And then you're going, okay, now I'm coming into winter. What do I do with my horse? And so then we have another touch base. And so a lot of the places I go to will go back twice a year, which is pretty nice to be able to work with the same students and the same participants all the time. And so we go to the Northeast, then we'll hit the Southeast, and then we'll go up to the Midwest and I'll go through Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, and then work my way back down through Iowa. And so it's, pre it's pretty fun. I love traveling and it's fun to work with everybody and their horses. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sounds like you got it pretty well organized too for, you know, regions like that. And man, the logistics that go into that, I know for us too, we try to do similar and, and a lot of times twice, twice in a season or twice a year mm -hmm. as well. So I, I'm right there with you and it's, I don't know about you, but it's so exciting to be able to work with some of the same people and see how they progress and see where they're headed and, and what they're dealing with and stuff. And yeah, I love traveling. I love getting around and, and yeah, just helping people with their horses. So Tell us a little bit about your background and sort of how you came to be doing what you're doing now. Yeah, sure thing. So a lot of people think that I might have your backstory a little bit. A lot of times people look at me and they hear me talk and they'll go, oh, where'd you grow up out West? And they wait to hear like some great state like Colorado or Montana, you know, or something like that. But I grew up in central North Carolina. And I grew up in a family that was international business. So my dad spent six, eight months a year traveling around the country and overseas. Wow. And 
I grew up kind of playing golf, playing football, all those types of things. But my grandfather, or my papa, as I'd refer him to him as, he had a gentleman's cattle farm where he had anywhere from like 15 to 30 head of cattle at a time, just very much as a recreational hobby. But he leased ground to make to do hay and he took care of those cows and he had cow calf pairs and he took them to the sales. And I was over there any time that I could get there. And so my mom grew up on a big farm as a kid, but then, you know, as she got married to my dad and they grew the business lifestyle changes. And so I always had a really big passion for agriculture. And so my mom had this rule when I was growing up with my brother and I would go shopping and, you know, kids want stuff. And she'd be like, I'll buy you a book or I'll buy you a plant, but you can get one of the two. And for, I don't know why she decided that was how she was going to approach this situation with my brother and I, but my brother always bought the book. Like he's a bit of a history buff and a movie buff. And I always took the plant like 10 times over. And I always had a garden in the backyard and I just liked being outside. And so with seeing my dad growing up, I was like, he's always in the office. And I was like, I don't want to be in an office. I want to be doing something outside. And I later learned that he spent all of his time on an airplane and not so much time in the office. And now I'm like, you know what? That wouldn't have been so bad because I love to travel. But um, so I grew up like with my grandfather kind of fostering that love for agriculture. I kept my doors open as far as just wanting to be outside. So I turned 16, got a car and I was like, now I can get a job away from working in my parents' warehouse. And I found a local hunter jumper facility and I just went up there and started like being a basic groom for them, doing the little kids camp things, tacking up horses. And I was like, you know, this seems to be all right. Like I'll, we'll see what it was. And it was, and it was a good introduction, real light introduction of the horses. And then right after that summer in high school, I had to volunteer, I had to do volunteer community service hours for high school graduation. And I started volunteering at an equine rescue and I'll cut, I'll kind of speed the story, but basically I was there like six to eight months and all the horses that had come in were still there and they were looking better. They were acting a little bit better, but they weren't going anywhere. And I was so green and YouTube wasn't a thing at the time. So it wasn't like we had all these videos that we could go tap into. And I had started working at an Arabian horse performance horse facility, which I stayed for the next four years, but I was volunteering at this place in between. And basically people were like, listen, they're two to six years old, basically, and they know nothing. And it's hard to get somebody to adopt a pasture ornament that's two to six years old. And so at that time, I knew how to lunge a horse and I knew how to saddle a horse. And that was about the extent of my education because I was working at that's what I was doing at this Arabian farm. And I was like, well, you know, they're quiet. So if I could just use I just kind of bebopped around the round pin, use some natural intuition and just tried to work with these horses to where I could get them to lunge and get them to saddle. And then we got other trainers that were actually professionals to donate 30 or 60 days on them. Well, we started moving these horses out pretty quick. Right. And that to me, I'm like, that gave me the purpose a lot behind what my horsemanship is now, because I saw like those horses ended up in that situation because they didn't have an education or they were really difficult to be around. And so I took that, I ended up graduate. I went to the University of Kentucky, went to the equine program and that gave me a decent foundation as far as what I was learning, but I got internships and I started working with some top end people while I was in school and got introduced with a guy named Kip Fladlin, who's out and he's just moved back to Montana now. And he's very much in the Buckaroo Vaquero style horsemanship. And he was the one that really helped me 
through a program called Legacy of Legends. And that that's been that's happened down in Australia and it's been here in the United States. And so I, I got that scholarship and Kip kind of guided me into my first deep dive of this cult starting type deal. And that is what really kind of hook, line and sinkered me into it. I'm like, all right, now I'm about, I'm with somebody who makes a living, they teach. And I'm like, I can do this. And I was really dumbfounded, to be honest with you, when I was kind of getting into the horses and I learned of some of these guys that are traveling the country. I'm like, wait, there's people that make a living doing this. And they already, I don't have to figure all this stuff out. I can go learn from these guys and I can save myself decades of struggle and go learn from these guys. And so that's what I started doing. And it, it's really been a, a really deep point in my horsemanship that it's like there's an underlying purpose to make sure our horses are easy to be around and they have a really good education because if something happens to us at some point that we can't control those horses are safe you know if we take care of those basics then the sky's the limit then we can keep progressing into the more quote-unquote advanced but we got to make sure that these horses are not just gentle, but they are really easy and enjoyable to be around, which means your farrier likes to deal with them. Your vet likes to deal with them. You're anyone that can be around them. A kid can lead them around. And that's the, the rescue part of it is what really gave me purpose to that. And then since then, it's been like drinking from a fire hose. I've just tried to bring in as much information and work with as many people as possible. And I learned so much just from teaching other people. Absolutely. I mean, that going to that clinic this weekend, I told him, I was like, I will probably be the one that learns the most this weekend. And I was like, just because I am trying, like the human, the people challenge us, right. On how we're trying to work with them. We're trying to read the people just as we're trying to read the horses. And it's, it's so much, I mean, I absolutely love doing it. Absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it's one of those things. I think when you, when you found it, and like you said, you were like, wow, these guys are out there you know, making a living doing this and, and you don't sort of have to reinvent the wheel, even though it is a personal journey and we're all, you know, learning, like you say, drinking from the fire hose. And it's, it's a neat thing, I think. And I know for me, it's, it's a neat thing when we figure out where that fire hose is at, you know, and we know how to start mm -hmm. to tap into that. And, and we, we realize there's that knowledge and that information out there and we are hungry for it, you know, and, and, when we're working with our students, it's the same way, you know, you know, you can tell those ones who are, who are just like sponges, they yeah. are just hungry to learn the very next thing. And, and they just lap it up and they apply it and they figure it out and they learn what it feels like and what it doesn't feel like. And, and those are the people that are a lot of fun to work with as well as you, as you're going along and making, making that progress. Well, that sounds like quite an adventure. Uh, and so that's been, that's been quite a few years back now. So you've been sort of, have you mostly been based sort of in the Kentucky area or, or sort yeah. of how did you get established where you're at now? And how did the doors start to open for clinics uh, around different parts of the country? Mm -hmm. Yeah, super good question. So we, I moved up to Lexington in 2012 for college. Right. And so from there, I got my very first internship that I had right before college started, ended up being my lead to my very first job after college. And so I went and traveled with one of the major clinicians here in the US after college. And I had three basic goals. I wanted to see the country. I wanted to get better training horses. and I wanted to meet a bunch of people like those. I kept it pretty basic, but I wanted to go deep into that. And so 
after that, after college, I was there from 2012 to 2015. And then I left for about a year and a half and just lived in a trailer or somewhere else every three to four days. And that was awesome. You know, that was awesome. Whether it was a major expo or a clinic or working with somebody privately at their farm with their horses, that's what we were doing. And then after that, my wife, now my wife, she was still finishing up at university. And so once I left that job, and I was planning on going out West. I had, I had it all figured out as so I thought, right. <laughs> Except for right before I left that job, I proposed. And so now we were engaged and she's like, well, you can't just quite run off out West to go work with this list of people that you've been talking about going to work for. Cause we got a wedding to plan. And I was like, <laughs> okay. And so I had people that were willing to send horses to me. And I said, I'll train horses over the course of the winter. And come April when calving season starts, and I had planned to go ride with some performance horse guys that also ran cattle, so right. I could kind of get both. And when April came, the barn was full. <laughs> and then I was looking at cowboy day pay versus a little bit extra money from when I was training horses for the public. Yeah. And so I kind of felt like I got, I put myself in a position where I ended up on my own earlier than I planned on. I really wanted, I really had thought after leaving that initial job that I had about five more years to go work with other people before I, cause I knew as soon as I set roots, it was going to be really tough to get away from my own business to just go learn. And, but at the same time, I'd spent a lot of quite a few years up to that point, learning a lot of theory and just soaking in auditing because I didn't own a horse up to that point. So I was spending so much time listening to people do it. And then I would start cults on the side but I wasn't getting the number of horses under my belt that I really wanted to. And so basically when I ended up on my own, I got the opportunity to start putting to practice all of the stuff that I had learned. And that's probably been the biggest saving grace. It wasn't exactly how I wanted it to go. You know, I really wanted to kind of go out. And so now with where we're at, with all the traveling we're doing, I'm trying to build in time where I'm, if I'm near someone else's facility that I can build in some time to go ride with those people or have someone, or I can host a clinic for them at our facility and then, you know, pay them for an extra day or two to help us with our horses. Because I still, it's that continual learning. And as you mentioned earlier, it's just that you're all, it's your own personal journey. You know, you can, you can learn from other people, but if you're not developing it within yourself and really truly getting the feel of it, you can talk about it all day long, but you're not going to get it done. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you do have to be pretty intentional about that like you say, you know, making time in your schedule and, and geographically to, to go to those places and, and meet up with those folks, even if it's just for an hour or an afternoon mm -hmm. or whatever it is, you know, you, you take advantage of those opportunities. And, and I, I love your, I love your take on, on the journey, I guess, and the learning process. Like we're never going to be done learning. We're never going to arrive at some sort of destination where we can say, all right, I've got her, got her figured out, you know, and yeah. it sounds like you're very much in that line of thought as well. Another thing that I think I have heard somewhere that you were involved in, and that is a, probably a pretty good learning opportunity is the, is the Mustang makeover. Mm -hmm. uh, and so maybe tell us a little bit about how you got involved with that and, and some of the things you learned and what, what, what happened with that deal and mm -hmm. fill us in there. Yeah, you bet. So uh, a couple of years back before I ended up on my own, I had a couple of friends that did it, you know, it just people were kind of 
chattering about the event and I got to go and help one of my good now good friends compete and it was it's one of those things where you get a Mustang completely totally wild barrel kind of like y'all's Brumbies would be and they're just untouched and you get a, about 100 days to take those horses to get them as trained as possible and go show and so I was what it tends to happen with these competitions everyone's looking for the perfect time to jump in and there's not really a perfect time to jump into these competitions. Like you need to be pretty comfortable with understanding to starting Colts at a very basic level. Um, you know, if you're not comfortable starting a Colt, you probably definitely don't want to start stepping your foot into the Mustangs, but in understanding how to hold your brake horses, but I have a lot of people call me and they're like, how do I know when I'm ready? And I'm like, well, if you're comfortably starting Colts, like this is a really good opportunity for you to take your own education next level. Cause things are going to get raw and real with these horses. Cause they're just, they are what they are. They're expressing how they feel. Survival is at the utmost importance. And so I eventually got to that point where I'm like, I was training horses on my own and I was like, all right, I got a barn full of horses, but now I was in one location. I wasn't traveling. So the clinics themselves, I think in your last question, like the clinics themselves didn't really come around for the first couple of years um, as I was on my own. I just had to build my own reputation, but people knew I was out there. They're just like, is I feel like they're kind of like, is this guy going to stick around in the business? And so we've just been really trying to build up our message and what I believe and stand for. And these Mustangs, really, I, I took it as an opportunity to challenge myself and to see how much can I get done and what can I learn from this horse? Because I had helped other people with a few Mustangs, but it was like, okay, I'm going to get one that no one else has messed with. I'm getting the real raw deal and I'm just going to do the best I can. I'm just going to do the best I can. And I, I'm normally a very competitive goal oriented person. And I, when I say competitive, particularly with the horses, like I'm competitive in the preparation process. Um, I want to win, but you don't win in the warm-up arena before the class. Absolutely. You right. win in all the work that you do leading up to that. And that's where I get super competitive. It's just like, no one, no one can beat me to the barn in the morning, basically like compared to that competition. So I was like, I was just pouring hours. And because I hadn't done this before, the only way that I knew to get ahead was to put more time in. I was like, I just got to put more in because I I'm lacking. I was at the time I was lacking that first initial experience with that first horse. So we went to the first one and it turns out there was about 75 people that competed and all said and done, we ended up in second. So I was like, it's not too bad. You know, like, like I, we won the compulsory, won the reigning pattern in that first year. And then we lost it in the freestyle. And I have a thing for doing that because I did it the second time I competed. <laughs> so the first two times I've gone, I've, we've been in the top two for the top 10 and then we've gone to the finals and I've, and the, we basically, there's a reigning pattern and a freestyle to compete in. And the reigning pattern, both times I've taken it home, but that's only 40% of your score and 60% is your freestyle. So it's funny you bring this up because you might've seen this on our Instagram, but we picked up Mustangs last Tuesday. And so my assistant and myself are competing in one in New Jersey this year. And so we just, I flew in and actually my assistant and I were on the same flight back um, she was coming from somewhere else in the country. We ended up on the same plane coming back to the Lexington. And um, so we put together a game plan and got to working with those horses this evening a little bit. And now we've got until the middle of October to get those horses as trained as possible. And it's a, to me, it's, it's a challenge for my own horsemanship because I want 
just the way it's way I go about doing it. It's, you know, there's a lot of ways to get the job done, but I take a lot of pride in those horses being able to get to that competition mentally and physically super sound. I mean, they're engaged, they enjoy their jobs, they're confident, they trust you. It's a challenge. I mean, you're taking a hundred day Mustang and going to show. So it's no easy feat to get those horses there, but and the one I've gotten out, holy Lord, is she sensitive. She is catty. She is typey. And I love her to death, but I'm like, oh, man, like she is going to be an interesting one. They're all so different. So it, to me, it's a challenge of my own horsemanship. And it's a great way to give those horses another home. And we really try to use it as an opportunity to build people's awareness because there's just a lot of people that we, we ride a lot of warm bloods. Hunters, jumpers, and dressage horses are our primary client horses. And so when we have our clients come in the barn and they see these horses with brands up their neck, they're just like, what's that thing? Or they have a tag hanging around them or they're snored at them because they just got into the barn and they're like, oh my gosh, we thought ours were feral. I'm like, no, that one's actually feral. And so it's, it's a pretty good education, education opportunity for other people too. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that's, and that's part of the purpose of the Mustang makeover. Anyway, it's, uh, you know, we visited before in the past about my experience with the uh, the wild horses here, which, which are called the Kaimanawas. And um, mm-hmm. it was the same. I, I took it as an opportunity to advance my own experience and education. And, and it was a, it was a stallion challenge. So we ended up with wild stallions that had just been drawn randomly. And yeah, it was a learning <laughs> experience to say the least. Yeah. And so, no, I really, I really, agree with you there. And, and, and like you say, then for people to be able to see that too, especially probably in that part of the country, you know, where, where they're, they're not out there running around in the back 40. So uh, that's, that's a cool opportunity. Now you mentioned that uh, most of your clients there are hunters and jumpers and dressage horses. And I'm, I'm kind of the same, a lot of that, those types of disciplines, of course, here in New Zealand. And that was something that I wasn't very familiar with. Matter of fact, hardly at all before I moved here, those sorts of horses and those types of disciplines. And so it's been a a big part of my learning experience over the last 10 years here in New Zealand to learn more about those disciplines and those different types of breeds of horses that you don't really see much out West. And so tell us a little bit about that. And also like how you, Sometimes there's this divide, you know, and I think we maybe even have talked about this in the past, you and I, that there doesn't need to be, but there is sometimes in some people's minds, a divide between Western and English or between horsemanship and English style disciplines or, or various things. And there's some perceptions in some people's minds that it's just a cowboy thing or it's a Western horse thing or, or you know, what is this horsemanship deal? And how do you bridge that gap? How do you break down that wall to help people realize that it's a horse thing? No, I think you, you, that was brilliantly well said, you know, it's a horse thing and we can't, we can't let the hat and the jeans or the breeches or the small saddles versus the wade saddles. Like we got to kind of get past that as to a certain degree. But the thing is, is that, you know, you're judging a book by its cover, you know, and for you and I that are educators, my goal and I was explaining this to some of my clinic participants this weekend is like there's a lot of things that'll hold people back from seeing what can really serve them and if I have a student whether it's uh, someone that sends me a training horse or if there's a student coming for private lessons or I'm going to teach a clinic 
if they're paying me money and trusting me with their horse and their time, it's my job to figure out how I can phrase things up to help them understand what I'm trying to offer them and how it can serve them. I can't do it for them. I can only do the best. And so, of course, the we always will joke that the horses are the easy part and the humans are the challenging part. I would have to say that I enjoy the challenge of working with different people. And this year has been exceptionally challenging because I'm getting deeper and deeper into different topics. And, and as I get deeper, people have more questions and sometimes it causes more friction. And so I'm the one that has to figure out how do I explain this in a certain way? And I have a deep appreciation for dressage. I absolutely love dressage. My wife and I, right before COVID in 2020, went to Portugal and rode at the Valencia Riding Academy. And it's classical dressage, not necessarily what we would call competition dressage. You know, we'll kind of, we will draw a divide in that. Um, Is way more classically based. And the style I like to prefer is more of the Vaquero style horsemanship. And I, on a competition level, I really like the rain cow horse but that's because I'm busy minded. Like a lot of those cow horses are. And I like to have other things to do than just like, I like to go circles, but I like to work cows, you know, <laughs> then I like to have something that's elegant and I like to have something that's gritty. Like that's just the way my brain works that way. And so when I'm looking at trying to div- one, my wife rides the hunters. And when I rode with Kip Fladland out and he was in Iowa at the time. Now he's in Montana. And I was at that legacy scholarship. He rode a lot of warm blood Colts at the time. A lot. And it was a fluke thing. Meredith and I were not even dating. We didn't really know each other at the time. And I spent a summer out there riding with him and half the horses we rode were warm bloods. And so I got kind of accustomed to them fairly early on in my own journey. And little did I know it would kind of circle back and have me working with those horses more. And I do like the warm bloods because the, the, the breeding is there sometimes for better and sometimes for worse, but at least you know what you got. And so when I'm really connecting the dots, I just really try to talk about what we're, we're talking about softness. We're talking about connection. We're talking about understanding and focus and relaxation. And if I talk about those principles, we all want them. I don't care whether you want to ride in a spade, ride on the terrain, or if you want to go, go up through the levels of Grand Prix, or you want to trail ride, we all want our horses focused. We all, all want them relaxed. We want them supple, soft, confident, all trusting, connected, all those things. And so I really kind of really spend quite a bit of time talking about those. And at the same time, from a business perspective, I don't really try to get worried on if people are caught up on what I, how I dress and I'll wear breeches. Like there's plenty of photos and videos of me riding in breeches, but if people are caught up on the initial surface, then it's almost as if they need to get a little deeper into our ecosystem to understand what we're about. And I mean, I have people say, Hey, I, I heard you're great at starting Colts. We want to send a horse to you. And I can tell right off the bat, they have no idea what we're about. And I'm like, please, like, here's some resources. Please just like tap into what we do and why we do it. Cause it'll answer a lot of questions that way. And so the last couple of years, I think it's been consistency is just really getting our message out there so that we get like-minded people that come in and, there are times I will tell you, and you probably, you might run into this, but this year, one of the biggest things that I've run into at clinics and working with students, particularly coming from the students come from the English world is the understanding that they want to go inside leg, outside rain. So much. 
And it's just, and if you ask them, okay, they're like, yeah, it's inside leg, outside drain. I'm like, okay, but why do you use the outside drain? What is the outside drain there for? What is the purpose? When do you do it? What is the timing? And a lot of the times they do not have answers to those questions. They just know that their trainers have told them inside leg, outside drain. And I taught a clinic in Middleburg, Virginia, a couple of weeks back. And there was a lady that was really hung up on this. And she challenged me. And I was coaching with two other professionals. It was a collaboration clinic. And she was hitting us all pretty hard with it. And what I really learned from that and what I took to the, the next couple of clinics I went and talked to, because the people were hung up on the same thing. And what I explained to her was, when I, my breakthrough with her was that we were not saying that the inside leg, outside ring is wrong. It's just not yet. Because I spend a lot of times going inside leg, inside rain, inside leg, inside rain, building a strong association for focus and relaxation, then direction, and then position off of the inside rain in that particular order, utilizing the inside rain for focus, relaxation, direction, and then later position off the inside aids only. Then later, once they're good left and right, applying the outside aid to help compress the horse's body and put the horse into a more athletic position, but only when they truly understand what the reins are for. And so the, when we break it down and we understand that there's, it's really step-by-step, step. you know, yeah. as much as we, people don't want to systematize horse training, there does have to be a sequence of, of things or ingredients that have to be in place so that we can advance with quality the next step. And so I've really tried to break it down in the inside leg, outside rain thing is what seems to get a lot of people hung up. And it's something very basic because to me, I just go inside leg, inside rain. Like, but we, you and I have started a lot of cults and we understand if we went inside leg, outside rain and on the babies, it'd be a joke. Yeah. You know, there would just be resistance and there'd be head be flipping up in the air and we probably end up going the wrong direction and all those types of things. And so it's, it's really just trying to understand where people are coming from in their own journey. There's a, there's some, there's some simple things that are usually like the inside leg outside or anything that sometimes happens from clinic to clinic to clinic, but ask questions. You know, I ask my horse questions a lot, you know, do you understand this? If I did this, what does this mean to you? And I do the same thing with my students and I just really try to work from where they're at and understand that whether it's English or Western, if you watch a horse that like a horse and rider that is really, really appealing to watch, and it's really got that artistic feel to it, it does not matter what gear is on them. You can tell when that horse is relaxed and enjoys their job and is engaged physically and mentally. It doesn't matter what they're wearing. And I think we're all after that. And so if we can kind of strip past our own ego on working with each other and just go, it doesn't matter, you know, that it just doesn't matter. It's just like, let's just get out there and learn the most we can with our horses and let's have some fun. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I like what you said about, you know, breaking these things down into steps and pieces. I usually, I, I call it, you know, recognizing the pieces that make up the whole of um, mm whatever it is that we want to do, you know, and, and people have different goals or aspirations or things that they would like to accomplish with their horses or go and do, or go and try. And just recognizing what those pieces are, not only for themselves, but for the horse, what does the horse need to understand? Like you said, what are the, what are the answers to each of those questions? And so whether it's the inside leg, outside rein 
question or, or debate, I find that sometimes there's a shift of philosophy that might help people. For instance, uh, sort of around that, that particular issue that does come up a lot with, with English writers and, and, and working from people uh, that are from that background. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I do that uh, I've found sometimes helpful is to help them think about using their legs for a different reason, I guess. And so it goes back to the why of what we're doing not just what we're doing, but, or what we've been taught, but why do we do these things and understanding the, the way the horse works or the way they're thinking or the way, the way they look at life and how we can set these things up through a better understanding of the purpose or the longevity. Like you said, it's down the road there, or it's in, in the future when they have those pieces in place. So I don't, I don't try to use my legs to ever contain a horse. I don't want to have to hold them in a shape or a, frame or anything like that. I don't want there to be this restrictive containing or a, a place where number one, a hotter sensitive horse is going to get bothered or, or fractious with that pressure. And then the rest of them, most of them are going to get a certain amount of tolerance or dullness up to a constant pressure like that, you know? So that's kind of the way I sometimes put it is how are we using our legs and why, mm-hmm. not just what are we doing, but how and why, and so that we can understand better the what of, you know, what we're trying to actually accomplish. So now that's, yeah, I think a big thing that I've tapped into that's it's been challenging for myself, but I've also then tried to take the challenge of re, trying to explain this to other people, particularly my students is that even with our, because we work with our training horses every day, I'm working with my assistant and I'm explaining like, listen, we're not the physical results that we get with this with our horses at this point are basically a byproduct of what we're doing. Absolutely. And, and the people send us the horses because they have a, maybe the horse is rearing up and running off, or it really can bend its head to the inside and run out the outside shoulder. So they have all these physical quote unquote problems and they want the physical results. They want to know that they can stop it, turn it left, turn it right or work on more advanced maneuvers, why are the horses coming to us? And even people that come to clinics, that's what they have something on. When I ask them, what are your goals for the clinics? Besides connection and trust, which are the two most popular answers, then there is my horse is really heavy in my hand or my horse is really dull to the leg. And then it comes into what, as you were saying, been like understanding why we use the aids and how we use the aids. And what I've really been diving into is like, listen, we're really working on the horse's mind when the horse truly understands the philosophy behind the aids and we're actually building the thought process, building the neurological pathways in that horse's mind. And we're releasing in time with just the simple thoughts and actions that come from the horse thinking about doing what we'd like them to do. The physical results already happen. Exactly. And that has been, yeah, for you and I, this is like pot talking kettle and preaching to the choir. And I just find that it's like, but it becomes so tricky because we, I understand, I guess it's taken a long time to get to this point to where it's like, where I'm almost at this point solely focused on the horse's mind. And yes, I have to make sure that the horse's well-being that I've checked those boxes to make sure that the horse can do certain things, like the things that just need to be done. They need to be good with their feet. They need to lead well. They need to stand tied. They need to do these things like And it's my responsibility to make sure that we're putting in the effort to get that horse taken care of in those departments. But it's really focusing on 
I always, I told my clinics, clinic participants this weekend, I said, if I handed you your horse, a notebook and a pen of paper, and I said, what does the bridle mean to you? And why does your human use the bridle? What would they write down? And then I worked with them and they, you know, people share their responses. Then we went through what we would like our horses to be able to reiterate to us. And if the horses could explain it back to us and we're pretty confident what their response would be, then the horse probably has a pretty good understanding of what we're actually teaching, you know? And so it's, it's, it's just kind of peeling back those layers and really going, if I could crack this horse's mind open, what do we got? Exactly. Exactly. And, and I think you hit the nail on the head, the, the physical things that we may be looking for trying to do are actually a byproduct of where he's at mentally and emotionally. I always think about those two aspects and the way I put it is, you know, some of the quality even of the movement or whatever we're looking for is rooted in where he's at mentally and emotionally. Is he okay? Is he trusting? Does he understand? And like you said, when he starts to understand and think that which we'd like him to think, and he's okay emotionally about thinking it, then the physical is going to happen. It's going to be there. And it's going to be as easy as falling off a log because he he's doing it himself through a willing understanding. And so it's very easy to get caught up in, in what we're doing and maneuvers or being, like you say, even being able to make sure they know how to do these things, which are all important things to be able to do and, and be responsive in. But the horse is a funny animal that, that we can make them do these things without the understanding. We can have these things happening through force or fear. And some of us can't tell the difference. You know, we can't, we, we don't see the 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 under underlying areas we we see the physical and we see that it happens so we're happy and and i i get on that soapbox a lot with people and and again going not just the what we're doing but why when and how and understanding that it's not really about what we're doing at all it's not mm. not that physical aspect first at all you know that's that's i love how you said that it's a byproduct so mm-hmm. um here's a question for you what would there be one horse that you'll never forget? Maybe challenging, maybe unique situation. Would there be one horse that just always stands out in your mind? Yeah. Um, there's been a, I'll probably hit on two, one real briefly and one more extensively. I had a horse call uh, by a, that actually my father-in-law has now. He's been riding on him a bit down at their family farm, but he's, the breed is technically a Nakota. So they're about as close to the wild Mustangs as you can get, but there's um, some preservations type up in the North Dakota area. And that's hence Nakota. And I ended up getting one of those horses. Yeah. And there, this guy was pretty neat. Um, was, is he's, he's down at the family farm. He's still doing well. And he was really, really cool horse. He came from a line of horses that they would call the watchers. And basically he could, that horse could see anything. I mean, flat out see anything. And I did about 30 days of groundwork before I got on him, just really getting him prepped. He was seven years old, had never been started. And he was a stout son of a buck. And I was like, all right, get him going. And that first ride was a first ride I'll never forget because <laughs> it was cold. It was the middle of winter here in Kentucky. And I was in the barn by myself and I just got on me. It was nice and quiet. And what, this was probably one of the first horses I'd had this happen. And I got on him and he was as quiet as ever on the ground, but I got on him and went to move him off. And I was just 
walking him in some circles, bending him left and right. And every time he would change direction and he felt my outside leg, he'd get super bothered. And I quickly realized he was getting bothered enough that getting off of him was going to be a bit of a challenge. And so I was like, all right, how are we going to navigate this situation? So I just, I was like, yeah, all right, buddy. Like just walk some serpent, serpentines, change direction. I just had my rope halter and I was just flipping the lead rope back and forth across his ears there. And, and he just kind of started to slow up on me and I drove him forward and he just stopped and he never really got tight, but his head just disappeared. And I grabbed the night latch and I grabbed the candle in my saddle and just sat there and he didn't leave a three foot diameter. But when I looked down, it was the edge of my CSI saddle pad and the floor. <laughs> and his head was between his knees and he bucks. And I'm like, I tried to pick his head up once or twice. And he was like, and he just stayed there. And then he starts bawling like a wean calf. And I'm like, <laughs> I, then I knew I was in trouble. For sure. Cause then I'm like, Oh no. And so he starts, he starts bronking around and I knew I had like everything when those court, when those adrenaline rushes happen for me, things slow down dramatically. And so all of this was just like slow motion. And I could, I thought to myself, I was like, if I come off this horse right now, I may never get back on him. And I rode him as hard as I could. I got done. My knuckles were bloody because after, and he did, cause it was just bashing into my saddle as I was trying to hang on. And he stopped my stirrups. I lost both my stirrups. My stir, I looked like a bareback bronc rider because my, my feet were in his shoulders and my stirrups were wrapped around my legs. And I got done, got myself situated, realized that I was going to be super sore for the next week and slipped my feet back in my stirrups. He just picked his head up, licked him, chewed, walked off. And he never bucked another day in his life. But <laughs> There was that particular ride that I'll never forget, but that horse was really tricky. I mean, the next, I rode him a couple more times and the hardest part was getting off of him. And that was the real thing. And I never up until recently had a saddle horse that I could use to help get those horses repaired. Everything was being done from a fence to get above them or on the ground. Yeah. And that horse was about as close to a Mustang that I had gotten to. And that horse had some trauma in his past. So I was also trying to overcome those situations and but he prepped me for those Mustang makeovers yeah, as best he could. And that horse really served a purpose in that way. And then I ended up just selling just about a month ago. I sold my personal saddle horse. It was a Mustang that I did the 2019 makeover with that horse went through was amazing. I mean, served me so well. And I mean, I ended up buying her back in the auction and she was lightly for sale on the side, but I mean, she went to clinics with me. I mean, we did, everything from Liberty demonstrations to I started Colts on her all the time. I started many other Mustangs off of her, you know, halter breaking babies, rope and stuff. And she was, and she really kind of set me up. I reached the kind of the peak of her physical abilities as far as how she was built. And we were just kind of to the end of that road and a really wonderful family came along and we're willing to pay for her. And so she sold about a month ago, but that horse, I had her two years and that's been about the longest that I've had one that I've had my personal investment in for that amount of time. Yeah. And that horse taught me a whole lot and all of our education videos that are coming out soon, she's in all of them, you know? So it's like, before she left, we we're like, we got to get every last that we can from her because she was just, she's got so much knowledge in her 
and it takes so much time to get that out to get that into a next horse. Absolutely. It does. It takes a long time, especially sometimes with the wild ones or the trickier ones. I know that Kaimanawa that I started, I still have him and, and he's easily the horse that I've put more hours into than any other horse. Mm-hmm. Uh, I haven't ridden him as much the last year and a half, probably, because I've got that, that young stud that we were talking about before we started here today uh, that we brought in from Colorado. And so I got him going and I've got my other quarter horse going. So he kind of gets set on the back shelf every once in a while, but he's, he's a handy little guy and I can rope on him and I've started lots of Colts with mm-hmm. him and stuff. And he's traveled all over the country with me, but uh, he's still just got that little edge of tricky in there. And I was really careful when I started him. And I'm sure you can relate to this. I didn't want a deadhead. I didn't want to just desensitize the life out of him or, or, you know, I, I these Kaimanawas, I've worked with lots and lots of them, and they have this tendency to, you know, they're wild or, or maybe they're domesticated, but they're, you know, they come from wild stock and, and mm-hmm. they get really, really, really quiet. Um, you know, as you work with them, a lot of them will get really, really quiet, even to the point of being very dull and almost lifeless. They, I, I call it energy conservation. And he's a classic one for that. You know, he just does not waste any energy. Mm-hmm. And so, I was always very, very careful in how I asked him with, with some life to do something. I didn't want to dull him to that. I wanted him to sensitive and responsive, which he still is. Uh, but he's like the roping deal. You know, he had some injury and trauma on the right side of his neck and towards his pole when I first got him. And we did a lot of body work with him and stuff like that. And so he, you know, I can do, I can rope on him, but I got to just hold him together a little bit because when that rope comes tight up by his right eye, he's not a fan. <laughs> you know? he, he just, uh, you know, you just got to kind of hold everything together and manage it a little bit. And, and I worked on it and broke it down. And with him, you had to break everything down to the nth degree. And then by about a hundred after that, you know, and then repeated a few several hundred thousand times, you know, Mm -hmm. he was one of those horses. And I did that with the roping and, and for, for hours and hours and days and days and months and months. And he would get up to a certain point. And if I was consistent, we could, we could do some stuff we could manage, but it finally just dawned on me, you know, he's just not going to be the best rope horse, you know, he's just, that's how I felt with that Nakota is that I got really far with him. I had that, I had that horse for two years before my father-in-law took him and I really needed something I could start Colts off of and that particular horse when another horse got bothered he would stick with me but if I had to have a dally off on a Colt he was not he was not going to be game to stay with me in that situation and it was like you know that horse is a phenomenal liberty horse and he's great at a lot of other things but he wasn't for as much Colt starting as I do. I was like, I really need to put some time into a horse. That's going to be able to help me out in this other way. Yeah. And it's tough. I think you and I talked about this before, but it is tough like to kind of look at those horses and go, okay, when is it that we kind of go, this is just not going to be for this particular horse. And that sometimes can be a hard thing. Cause I don't like to put limitations on my horses. I would hate, I hate when people look at me and be like, yeah, you're just never going to get there. It's like, no, I probably will because I'm hard headed that way. But I hate to put that on my horses to go like, well, maybe with enough time and effort, but we only have so much time and energy. And yeah, that's sometimes exactly. other horses are better minded for a particular job. It makes our life easier. 
Absolutely. And it, and ultimately it makes their life easier. If we can find something that they're, you know, good at, or they like to do, then it, it's just, everything's just going to work better. We're probably going to be safer. They're going to feel safer and everybody's going to be happier about it. And it, and at that point, you know, I think it's part of our learning experience. I know it was for me over, you know, over the years to, to just realize, you know, Hey, this horse is not really ever going to excel at obstacles or cowboy challenge or whatever, you know, or roping or whatever it is, like you said, you know, the, the, the nervousness of, a, of trying to help a young horse through a tight spot, you know, if, if they start to lose the plot just a little bit and you have to try to manage your saddle horse and that colt at the same time, I mean, yeah, it's going to take some time, but to, to go ahead and put your time into another horse that's going to be able to really help you there is well worth the investment. And that's, that's what I found. And at that point, you know, our, our egos would say, you know, oh, well, that's a reflection. We, we, you, you just couldn't get him right. You couldn't get him good enough, you know, but hey, that's not what it's about. You know, it's not what that's not what it's about at all. And and at the end of the day, maybe somebody else could have done a better job. That's not the question either. The, the question is, is this horse happy in his work? And, and is he you know, is he doing what he was created for? You know, just like we want to be. So it's it's kind of one of those things, I guess. Yeah. I got I got another question for you here. Um, and this is kind of, this is kind of, I tell you what, I'll save this question to last. Cause this is kind of one that I'd like to like to ask you right at, right at the end. Have you got any other stories or anything that happened here recently? Something that's you've been working on. Cause I know like when you're teaching clinics and I'm sure you're the same, you know, you, you, um, you get into these subjects and sometimes it's something that you hit on pretty much every clinic. And then other times it's like, you're unfolding another layer or something. And you, like you said, you're learning more than your clinic participants. That's the way I am too. Mm -hmm. Like you're learning from them. You're learning how to communicate. You're learning from these horses and how everything's interacting and another layer comes out and you start to say things in a way that you've never said it before. It may be a subject that you've covered before, but it's a, it's a new way of saying it. It's a new, new way of communicating it. Uh, or perhaps a completely different perspective or aspect coming in from a completely different angle on something. Have you got something fresh like that that you've been chewing on for the last few weeks or months? Yeah. So I, I didn't, I haven't quite finished the Q and a series, but I started this 30 day Q and a deal where people are just submitting questions to us. And I had a lady, she actually has a horse in training with me and she asked this question and I was like, that is such a phenomenal question question like the way she phrased it and what she asked was is I feel like my horse how can I tell the difference between my horse trusting me and my horse liking me and I was like I'll be danged that is a phenomenal question because we all want our horses to like us and so I spent some time thinking on this before I kind of gave her an answer I'm like because to a certain degree it seems pretty straightforward but then it's like it's not just a question of how do I tell the difference between does my horse like me or trust me? But then it is, then the question is, how do I get my horse to trust me? Because we all, if you if I tell you, if you, if I tell you the definition of just the difference between the two, we all, we all need the trust. Like if I just, you know, we we're pretty good at getting our horses to like us and no one, hardly anybody has any trouble getting their horse to like them. But what does it look like when our horse truly trusts us? And we kind of touched on a few of these things earlier in the conversation, but I break, I've been breaking it down into three things. I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this as well. Cause this is kind of what I've been shaking through. And 
So we have to, in order to have our horses to trust us, they, there's, there's two other things that I think they definitely need. And it's, they got to like us. And then, then they need to know who we are. So we have to be honest with those horses, with who we are. So they have to know us, they have to like us so that they can trust us. And if, and then the question is, well, then how do we get our horses to know who we are? And that means that we have to be honest with ourselves. And so, you know, that I spend quite a bit of time on the personal development side of really making sure we're spending the time on ourselves. And so I think that that means that when we go to the barn and many of us have other things going on and, or maybe the horse did something yesterday that we didn't really like. And we get to the barn the next day and people anticipate, maybe I can't catch him again today. Or is he going to try to run me over the shoulder again today? And it's just really important that we approach the time with our horse and we're very mentally present. And that if we have a fear, some of us might have an anxiety about working with our horse or we're not mentally present because we're thinking about 17 other things that are going on in our lives. We cannot suppress that and compartmentalize that in such a degree to where when we go to approach our horse, we can act like we've just shoved it into the closet where all of our junk is and expecting our horse to be perfectly fine with it because our horses know that there's other stuff going on in here. And if we don't acknowledge that to our horse saying, and it's okay. Like if you come to the barn and you've got a bunch on your mind, just be forthright and kind of be like, Hey horse, like I'm going to do my best here, but I, I I've got a lot of other stuff going on in my head. And I feel like the horses are so intuitive enough to that. Or if you have fear is one of the biggest things. Like some people say, just like, just put it to the side, just get back on, you'll be fine. And it's like, no, actually, that's probably a really bad idea in some, in, in some regards. Like fear, overcoming fear is a whole other conversation. But to, to try, for you to be scared or to have some sort of anxiety, your horse to know and be able to tell because they have so much intuition and in how to read body language and energy and you to go, I'm going to act like it's all okay, completely jeopardizes the very thing that your horse values most, which is their safety. And so our horses got to feel safe. If they don't feel safe, we can't get to step two. That's right. We can't get them to, we, they can't like us and they can't trust us. And then it, it affects everything else down the road. So when we come in with all this emotional, mental baggage and the things that are just day-to-day -day life stuff, I think that in order to let our horses know who we are, we have to have enough self-awareness of what's going on in our own mind and body. What is our mental, physical, and emotional states and even spiritual states of where we are at and how are we currently existing in the moment? And that's a challenge in itself. That's a place to start as far as us working on ourselves away from our horses. But then when it's time to get to our horses we have to acknowledge those things and realize like no judgment. This is where we're at today. And you're simply doing the best that you can do today. And you're going to learn from it. And tomorrow you're going to come out a little bit better. And so, you know, who you are and you know where you are in the moment you express that to your horse. Now your horse knows where you're at and you're starting to truly have a positive relationship. And I think that this could go for not just horses, but this could go with kids, spouses, yeah. boyfriends girlfriends whatever is just that be honest be upfront express how you're feeling and because if you hold that 
in, you'll start to resent something later. Like if we hold that in and then our horse says, you go to walk into the stall and you're holding something in and your horse just turns away from you to the back of the stall. And then you're like, what the hell is your problem? And it's like, no, they read that situation way before. And it wasn't personal to you. It was personal because it's going on within your bone self, but your horse has to do what's best for them. And they're like, Hey, Hey, I don't want any part of that. We've all sat in a room and someone walked in and go, Nope, <laughs> I'm going to go get coffee. I'm going to go get something else because that's just not the energy that we want to participate with. And I think that's really important. So the difference between our horses liking and trusting us starts in that knowing category. Do we know ourselves? Do we acknowledge those things? And does our horse know who we are? The liking's relatively straightforward. Yeah. We know what our horse get us to like us. That will allow us to get to the point where our horse can truly trust us. And then I always take practical applications to that. So we can train our horses in a quiet arena all day long and there be no obstacles no stuff going on but i want to know when things hit the fan what does my horse do because in true trust does my horse bypass the fight flight or freeze and they go hey human what do i need to do and that comes all the way back into what you and i spoke about earlier about how the horse associates to the aids and how we've presented things to our horse but that's a relationship because when i get to these mustang makeovers i can make those horses do enough plenty of stuff to get maneuvers done but when you're showing in front of that many people if you don't have that horse's trust and things get a little fast or the horse gets a little unsettled but some come because some kid runs down the stairwell you gotta have the horse's trust and have to expose your horses to those outside stimuli so that so that you know when things get stressful because life is stressful I introduce my horses to that and say, when things get tough, we focus harder and we find relaxation and we have to be intentional about that in our own lives. We have to be comfortable doing uncomfortable things and we have to make sure that we expose ourselves and our horses to that. Otherwise we get caught, we get caught in the situation and we're totally unprepared. And that means we got homework to do. We got to go prepare more, but I'd rather, I'd rather when I have those learning moments than be very minor, (laughs) I don't want to be caught in a wreck That's and right. going, holy moly, that was, that could have been really, really bad or it was bad. That, those are the situations we want to avoid because that could be career ending for you and I, and that could be horse riding career over for anyone that rides recreationally. And those are the things that we definitely can, we, through the process that you teach, the process that I teach, like that's what, that keeps people, that keeps the horses safe and people safe. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. You know? That is a really good question. You know, what is the difference between trust and a horse liking you? And I believe, you know, you hit the nail on the head where it's not so much what is the difference, but which one do we need and what does it look like and how do we get there? And that, as you, as you just explained, it's a, actually a huge process or a very foundational thing that builds into the, the really everything, absolutely everything that we're going to be doing with them right up until you know, as long as we're working with them and we're facing life and facing those circumstances that, that are challenging to, to them or to us or, or both. And one thing that came to my mind, as you said, that question, you sort of started in there is like you said, a, a lot of people can get their horses to like them. And that's often the easier thing to get working. The problem being is a lot of people don't realize that they're, they need more than that. You know, that they're, that, that the trust aspect is actually more important. 
And what I would say is trust being more important. The horse needs to ultimately know who we are. And I like what you're saying about congruency is what I would call it is where, you know, what's going on in here is we're not trying to hide that. We're not trying to, like you said, shove it in the closet. Horses are, are, you know, they wrote the book on being congruent. What you see is, is what you get, you know, and, and if you can't see it, you're not paying attention because some of them are pretty hard to read sometimes, but, but it's there, you know, they're not hiding these things uh, the way us humans do. And so congruency, knowing who we are and being honest about where we're at, at any given day is part of that. And then I think when you touch it, get, get in and you're actually working with that animal and you're actually trying to communicate with their mind. It's like what I was saying earlier about their mental and emotional states being reflected in their physical bodies in the way they're moving or the way they're shaped or where their eye is at or how high their pole is or whether there's tension in the muzzle, jaw, tongue, pole, top line, tail, you know, you look, yeah. you look at these areas of their body and you start to realize you're not just seeing what their body's doing, you're seeing what their mind is doing, you're seeing where their emotions are at. And so they're they're giving you that feedback, just like you said, we should give, give them that feedback and say, look, this is where I'm at today. And I'm, I'm a little distracted. I'm a little stressed about this, but I'm going to do my best with you here. And they're doing the exact same thing. They're telling you I'm distracted or, or I'm worried about this over here, or I can't focus on you more than a second, you know, but one thing that I find that really helps you, you asked for my thoughts. So one, I'll just add to what you're, what you were saying there in terms of what we're actually doing with our horses when. And timing, I think, has a huge amount to do with the building of trust. And, you know, we talk about the concept of pressure and release and, and how the release, you know, when the horse thinks the right thing or starts to do the right thing, he gets released, he understands, he tries that again, right? That's just a basic cause and effect. And, and again, it's a very physical, it's all in the physical, right? Or can be in a certain approach. It can be all physical. We're, we're putting a pressure or an ask on the horse. He starts to think and, and, and try to do the right thing. He gets released. And so there it is, bada bing, bada boom. And we don't sometimes think of the, the dots being connected behind the scenes or underneath their skin, where again, we're getting stuck on the physical when we do this stuff. I'll give you an example, because horses are, are, you know, they wrote the book on body language. And one thing that they get really good at is positioning a person who's unaware they're being repositioned in terms of where they're at in relation to the horse. And I call it position. I call it position as part of our body language. It's an element of our body language is knowing where we're at in relation to that horse, which eye we're in or both eyes and how we're positioning ourselves in part of how we're communicating, but also they are communicating. If they're repositioning you or putting you in a different eye, for instance, those are all little details and things that a lot of people are missing that I don't think builds trust. You see, when we miss those details or when we aren't aware of the importance of those details to the horse, the horse is not going to just come along and give his life to us on a silver platter. I mean, they just about do anyway. It's pretty, pretty remarkable what they do. But when push really comes to shove, like what you were saying, it's those little details a lot of times more than big glaring problems. Although there's some of those, you know, too, with some, mm -hmm. some situations, but a lot of times it's just, I think those little details that a lot of folks miss as they go along and they don't realize that there's a hole there in the horse's understanding or emotional state that causes him to reposition you and put you in a different eye. 
you know, there's, there's a communication going on there for whatever reason. So just, just little things like that. I mean, we could go on and on with that because it is so foundational to have a horse trust us. And, and I think trust and liking is not the same thing. Obviously I would rather have a horse trust me and that, than just like me. But I think that when they really do start to trust you, they will like you, you know, mm-hmm. and, and like you said, they could, they can like you without trusting you. But I think if they really trust you that they are going to start to like you because it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's part of it. it. It has to be part of it. If, if, if they're not enjoying, if they don't understand, if there's too much pressure, not enough release, whatever it is, they're not going to like that. So it's, it's all part of that deal, I think. All right. Yeah, I think that just one last thing, I know you're going to run on to the next thing, but it's like, I think that everyone goes, what do I do? Like, what can I do to get my horse to trust me? And I'll kid you not, the, I, and I, the, one of the easiest things to do is just recognize and acknowledge yeah. a horse's thought process. Yeah. It's not an exercise. It's not a totally different thing. I've talked about developing, I talk about developing working partnerships with our horses. Because right now there's like, let's get our horse physically trained or let's build a relationship with our horse. And at this point, I'm like, no, let's do this at the same time. Let's yeah. build a relationship with our horse through how we work with them and still get them educated in skills. But it's exactly what you said. It's the nuances of position and timing. And sometimes it's when you go to step in to pet your horse and they just turn their head. And they go, hey, I wasn't quite ready for that. I wasn't quite okay with that. Just hesitating physically and going, oh, I saw that. And then the horse going, wait. And you see them kind of blink and they roll their eyes and their ears change directions. And they look at you and they're like, wait, you saw that. And you just rub on them and you're like, yeah, I saw that. And that's all they needed. Yeah. Was just for you to have enough awareness to go, I saw that. And what you actually do is not, not only did you see it, but you proved to the horse that you noticed it and you were willing to make a change based on your current plan because of how the horse felt. Yeah. And it really didn't cost you, but yet five extra seconds to go, I saw that pause, look at the horse. Cause you're having a conversation exactly. and then the horse going, wow, you saw that because I think a lot of horses appreciate that when, when someone presents that to them because they've been bypassed so many times when they've tried to express themselves and then we end up with horses that are really crabby or they're really skittish and anxious because they, people have just missed it. But every time, oftentimes I just find people go, what do I do? And I'm like, just slow down for a second and try to find out what your horse is thinking and feeling. And when you see that all your gut, like we all have a good natural intuition in our systems. So if you're, if you think that horse is acting a little anxious, just make a small shift and try to figure out what's causing that anxiety are you too close are you on one side that they don't feel as confident on and then make it feel good to them rub on them scratch them use your thumbs like they don't have them like you can you know, just go through the process there and and i think it's just amazing how much we can get done by acknowledging and pausing Absolutely. and i think everyone gets caught up on exercises and it doesn't it doesn't always take it's just, it's timing and it's awareness, which is huge. It's, it's the key to everything else, but it's something that I think just gets bypassed too often. Yeah. Oh, I would, I would totally agree with that a hundred percent. You know, everybody wants to know what to do and really it's like, just do less, slow down and try to read your horse, try to 
recognize what they're feeling and thinking and acknowledge that. And I think, like you said, I totally agree. Just that acknowledgement will sometimes start to tip the scales where they just, they just need to be heard. They just need to know that their opinion or the way they're feeling matters to us, you know? And again, that's an, an element in building that trust. I really do believe that. And it's, it is awareness is huge. And, and, us humans are just great for just getting our head down and just charging forward and trying to get as much done as we can in a day. But the reality is, is taking that little bit of extra time. And, and that's where, oh, this is a whole nother subject, you know, but horsemanship is not a formula. You know, you just can't condense it down to this step-by-step deal. And, and I know it's been tried to be done. And it's certainly helped a lot of people with those sorts of programs that are out there, but it's, if we don't learn how to feel and have some empathy and adjust and recognize some good timing and some poor timing and all these things develop our own awareness as we go along, then, then we're going to get stuck, seriously stuck in a program or a formula or a step-by-step deal because Horses are not step by step, you know, and they, they didn't read that book, you know, and it's just not going to work. <laughs> Something's going to fall apart and we're not going to be able to figure out what we're supposed to do when. And, and all of those things, I think, as horsemen, I think if we'll take the time and learn to read the horses, then we can start to figure out some of the stuff that we can do in those moments. Like you said, whether it's just a hesitating, just acknowledging that, hey, your brain's not kind of right where I need it to be right now, you know, and whatever that looks like, you know, it's, I think you're right. A lot of times it doesn't amount to doing a whole lot as much as just adjusting our approach a little bit at different times or different ways. So now that's, that's a great thought, Colton. I sure appreciate that. Got, got one more question for you and we'll, and we'll wrap up on this one. How would you like to be remembered? What, what legacy are you working on? Oh, wow. That's, that's a good one. That's a good one. Um, man, you know, so one of the things I'm really working on right now, and I've been a little public about it is that I got, we all got started because we love horses and we all got into this oftentimes for the most part, because we wanted to help horses have a better chance. And then you get a little further in and you realize that we can only ride so many horses a day. And so we can only help that many horses. And that's kind of what led me to teaching more. I, I mean, I used to be the kid in class and in any presentations that when I stood up there, like I'd just get that so anxious, I'd just black out. Like I wouldn't pass out, but I would get done with the speech and I wouldn't remember anything I said. Because it was just so much anxiety. And, but then I got to start teaching on some horse things. I was like, man, I really like this. Like I found something I love to do and I started teaching. I didn't have any of that anxiety involved in it. And I started realizing that if I could help more people, I could help more horses. That's right. And that's the driving behind teaching these clinics. That's the driving behind all the videos we create and the podcasts and all the educational material we do is simply because I can only help so many people one-on-one, but if we have social media platforms, if we have email lists, if we have other outlets to share knowledge, then one person, how many people, how many horses does one person come in contact with that they could potentially be able to take a little bit more perspective and go help them. 
And so then the journey took me to that phase and I don't have kids yet, but my wife and I've been married going on close to four years. And it's like, at this point, I've really realized how much the horses have enabled me to better myself. Yeah. And it, there's been a couple of those horses that one that I mentioned earlier that we recently sold, like that was a horse that I hadn't got her yet, but before I picked her up for that second Mustang makeover, I started journaling more. I started meditating. I started taking cold showers. I started working out more. I started doing all those things to get ready for that competition. And I realized like how many of us as horse people will make changes in our lives for horses that we wouldn't necessarily do for ourselves or for our family or for our kids or for our careers, but we will do it. We'll lose that 20 extra pounds because it'll make our horses life better. Or we'll go start stretching and taking yoga class because we carry too much tension in our seat and that's not good for our horse. And we'll make all these changes for our horses, even though the direct thing that impacts is your communication with yourself and your spouse and it affects your own health. It might add five years on your life and might have a better relationship with your kids, or you might mend a really bad relationship that you used to have with a former family member or friend. And so at this point, like legacy wise, I'm really trying to use the horses as a vehicle to help people better their lives so that they can live happier, healthier lives. And the byproduct, as we were talking about earlier, will be that they achieve all of the things that they want to achieve with their horses. But I don't want it to just exist in the arena. How many times do we go to a clinic and we say, here's all this groundwork. Now, when you leave this arena, don't let all the rules go out of the door when you go walk back to the barn. It's the yeah. same thing to me is like, we take all this principle, we take all this philosophy, we take it the way, it's a way of being, like horsemanship, it like, yeah, horsemanship happens with horses, but it becomes a part of who you are and how you exist in the world. Yeah. And that means that we need to, I, I like to get the most bang for our So like when I work with my lead ropes, I hold my lead rope just like I hold my reins. Like, cause I like muscle memory. I, I try to put my body position in my groundwork, the exact position that I would ride so that I'm just making this easier for myself and my horse when I take that next step. And so it's like, we put on this work with our horses. Let's take it home. You know, let's be a better example for our kids. Let's have a better relationship with our spouse. Let's live healthier, let's eat cleaner, let's work out. Let's do all these things that we all know we should be doing, but because we deserve to live a happier, healthier life. And it's the most selfless thing that we can do because we all have, I mean, you have, you and your wife, you guys have kids and then like they'll eventually have kids and then you'll have grandkids. And like, if we're not taking care of ourselves now, then what, then like how, how does, how that impacts, that doesn't just impact you, that impacts so many other factors. Yeah. And so that legacy, I think I'm really after is just really trying to help people live the best life they can. And under, I understand the power that the horse has in our lives because they're, they're incredible. They're absolutely incredible. We have so much influence in our lives and it's, and it's everything that's helped me do. And I'm just getting started. Like I've learned a lot and I'm trying to do my best to help as many people as possible, but I know there's so much left in that tank to be learned and to kind of experience with these horses. And, you know, as, I mean, I wish we could give it all away, you know, like I wish that you could just kind of give it away. We have to support our families. 
you know, and this is a business to both of us, but it's, it really is just to help as many people as possible. And yeah, I, I, I think that's kind of where it ends at this point. I think that's, that's very well said. And you, you know, you hit the nail on the head and I've come to the same conclusion over the years is I can only help so many horses. I can only ride so many and I can only, only get my hands on a certain number of horses. But if I can multiply my time by influencing people or helping people uh, think about their horses differently, but also like you said, think about their lives differently and, and change their philosophy and, and thinking around their relationships that they are, that they have in their lives, you know, spouse, kids, parents, siblings, friends, those, those are, that's really has a lot more value actually than just the horses, as much value as they have and as much value as people place on their horses and on that relationship they have with their horses. Our, our relationships as humans is, is a whole nother, whole nother deal. And, and like you said, the horses and the horsemanship has a huge way of being very impactful right across the board. And it's, it's just, it is exciting. It's, it is very exciting to, to think about that and, and try to incorporate that in what we're doing. So that's fantastic. Now, Colton, I, uh, I'll have all these things in the show notes when we, when we go live on this, but go ahead and give us a, a mention of your social media platforms and your website and just where people can find out more about, about you and what you guys do. You bet. Yep. So it's pretty straightforward on our end. Our website is coltonwoodshorsemanship.com. And that has, that'll take you to all the access as far as what you'd like to find with what we have to offer. But our, we have Facebook, Instagram should, I got to keep up with Ben on the TikTok. I'm, I'm, I usually slack on the TikTok, but we do have it. And then a YouTube channel. It's all at Colton Woods Horsemanship. And sure. so same tag all across, but we got Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. Uh, and so we're here to help you guys out as much as we can. Awesome. Awesome. That's nice and easy. It's always good. Good to keep it easy for folks to, to find those things. Hey, man, I really appreciate your time today and just thoroughly enjoyed getting to visit with you again. We'll have to do it again sometime. Uh, just really yeah. appreciate you making the time. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I always look forward to catching up with you. Well, that's all from us today. Thank you for listening to American Cowboy in New Zealand. If you like this episode, please share and leave your five-star rating or review. Remember, you can find us on social media or our website, truewesthorsemanship.com.